Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Father, we approach you in prayer this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ coming to you to worship, to praise you, coming to give our thanksgiving for the many gifts that you have given us. This morning we give you thanks for the Son that you have sent and for us and for our salvation was crucified and buried and, and rose again on the third day. And now as he sits at your right hand, sends his spirit forth to dwell among us and in us. We pray that you would shape us and form us into a people who would be receptive to the promptings and the speaking of your Holy Spirit. That we would be shaped by the love of Christ that we have experienced, that we would be equipped to share that love with others. And we pray this morning that as we open up the scriptures, you would speak to us, that you would uh, move inside of us, and that you would transform us um, along uh, the journey that we are on. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone. If you have a Bible, open up with me, please, to Galatians chapter 5. We are in the tail end of a sermon series on the book of Galatians. We'll finish up chapter 5 this morning and then just have chapter 6 left, which will take two weeks uh, to go through. And then we will be at the doorstep of Advent, the season of the church calendar where we um, learn how to wait. We learn how to wait in patience. We learn how to wait with expectance. We learn how to wait um, in faithfulness. Um, it's easy for you and I to lose sight of the importance that signs play in our everyday life. All around us, every day, are signs that tell us where we are, signs um, that tell us where we're going, signs that tell us how to get there or what to do. And it's not until really you're in a place where you can't understand any of the signs or where the signs are themselves wrong that you start to figure out how important they are for daily life. A couple summers ago, I went to Europe with a few friends of mine, and we had prepared for this trip. We were going to 10 countries in 10 days. We prepared by, well, I had prepared. This is just who I am. I put a binder together for everyone who was going with uh, some sample language to learn for each of the different countries so we could uh, converse with the people and, and find ourselves around. And I made a critical mistake, which was that I had prepared and learned language. So we were driving in Germany for most of the trip and then just hopping to the countries outside of Germany as we drove. Um, and so I had learned like conversational, like German. Mi name ist Mike. Hi, my name is Mike. Let's be friends, German. Um, but I, I had not learned and I was not prepared for like street signs 
or like road signs or exit signs. And it's not until you're driving down the German Autobahn and you are trying to learn how to drive stick at the same time and all of your friends are asleep in the car around you and you realize you cannot read anything that is on this road. And we had planned for the fact that we were going to encounter stuff that we didn't know. And so we had downloaded Google Translate on our phones, which works really well if you've never used it. But it works primarily like at a menu or a book in front of you. Not as well when you're driving, again, down a freeway trying to read these, these exit signs in these roads. Um, it's a very lost feeling. It's a very hopeless feeling. Um, signs can be wrong at times, too. And then you start to realize how important a sign can be. Um, one of my favorite experiences ever was in 2009, a group of us from the church went to El Salvador uh, to build a well there with living water. And as we were coming back, we were waiting to leave El Salvador and fly back. We were at a little airport in El Salvador, had like two gates. And we show up a couple hours before the flight, and there's nothing outside. There's no planes. There's no you know, ground workers out there. And we're waiting there, and at our gate, it says departure time, 2.30. And then below it, ah, tiempo. Now, I took Spanish in high school, so I know that means the plane is on time, and we're all happy and excited for the day. We sit, and we wait, and we talk, and we laugh, and we play cards, and it gets closer to departure time. Around 2, two o'clock, we look up and look outside, and there's no plane, and there are no people out working, and we look to the sign, and the sign goes, Ah, tiempo, on time. We're still good to go. And we go, okay, sign, thank you. We talk some more, and then time passes, and we look up, and it's now 2.30 exactly, the time we're supposed to be departing, leaving the ground and going into the air on this long war against gravity that we call flying. Still no plane outside. Still no ground workers outside. And so we look up, departure time 2.30. It's 2.30 right now. Sign, ah, tiempo, on time. And it was like, I like your spirit, sign. You're optimistic, you're hopeful. Um, so we sat there a little bit longer. 3 o'clock comes around. 3.30 comes around. No plane. Ah, tiempo. We're on time. And we, we realized very quickly not to be frustrated about this, but instead embrace it. Because this is the best thing ever, okay? The El Salvadorians, we figured out, were us. We had an El Salvadorian heart. Because you're never late. You always just change the time you wanted to do that thing, right? Ah, tiempo. It's a lifestyle. It's a philosophy. This morning, you might have been like, I thought service starts at 1045. It's 1055 right now. It's like, no, we're, we're off tiempo. This is exactly, this is exactly when we wanted to, to start. Signs are important in our life. They help us know where we are, where we're going, um, and then how to get there. And this morning in our passage, Paul's going to give us um, some signs to our spiritual life, some signs to our spiritual health, um, ways for us to look out, observe, and know where we are, and to know where we're going to discern ways that we need to get to the next road in our life as Christians, daughters and sons of God led by the Spirit. So let's read together Galatians 5. We'll pick it up in verse 16. A fairly popular passage. If you've ever gone to VPS, this will strike you. You'll remember this. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're kind of opposing forces here. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things 
you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who started the song in their mind? Be honest. Anyone? Anyone? Okay, all alone. Okay. Against such things, Paul says, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, Paul's primary concern here, right before this passage and at the end of this passage, the last verse, is how the community in Galatia, how the Christian community is relating to one another. He ends right before where we picked up um, by saying, watch out if you bite and devour each other, you're going to eventually consume one another. That, that, that fighting, infighting, that division that's going to take over and collapse the community. Then he ends this as well with a similar conclusion. Let's not become conceited. Let's not attempt to provoke one another, envying one another. And in between, he talks about what it looks like for Christians to be people of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the different ways he describes our relationship to the Spirit, um, he does it in a multifaceted way. He talks about walking by the Spirit. He talks about being led by the Spirit. He talks about living by the Spirit. He talks about keeping in step with the Spirit. Being a Christian, whatever else it might mean, means that you and I are people of the Holy Spirit. We're people who are guided by the Holy Spirit. We're people who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're people who follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We're Holy Spirit-filled, shaped, characterized, individual, and community. And this is part of what it means um, to become adopted sons and daughters. We've talked about this in these previous passages. Um, In Christ, and the work that God has done in Christ, you and I are adopted into God's family. We become sons and daughters by grace, by gift, the same way that Jesus is a son by nature from eternity. And the way this happens is we receive the Holy Spirit. As we've seen, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to talk to the Father like Jesus talks to the Father. And the Holy Spirit helps us receive the love of the Father the way that Jesus has always received the love of the Father. And if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control— Anyone now? Okay, we'll try it. We'll keep trying. Chris is singing this as our next song, so we need to, we need to gear up. We need to prepare. If you, look at, if you look at these fruit, these different characteristics, one thing that should stand out to you that you should notice as you observe is that each one of these things finds its primary truth, finds its climax in the life of a human being in the person of Jesus. These are Christological character traits. These are things that are true about Jesus. You look at the life of Jesus and you see someone who has love. 
You see someone who is peace. You see someone who is patient, who's faithful, who's gentle, who's self-control. And it illustrates very clearly another role that the Spirit has in our life, which is the Spirit comes into our lives to shape us into the image of Christ, to form us into Christ's likeness. We might look and act and talk more like the Son. The Scriptures say in, in, in Romans that this is the end goal or destination of all Christians. That in fact, Christians have been predestined, chosen in advance to be conformed to the image of Christ. That mold that you see in the life of Jesus, the mold that you and I all have waiting for us at the end of this journey, the end of this life. Unfortunately, sometimes I feel like we leave that part out of perhaps like gospel presentations when we're inviting people to be Christians. Um, I understand why it's a little bit easier of a sell. Just like, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to burn forever? I'll choose heaven. Okay, yeah. And then like a few years later, we kind of surprise people. I get back door into this. Like, by the way, you're going to be like Jesus if uh, this is what you want. Um, it's a lot harder sell. And imagine just doing this to a group of people who aren't Christians to say, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to live like Jesus? Do you want to act like Jesus? Do you want to relate to people like Jesus? A lot of people are probably going to realize, like, Jesus got killed. Right? Jesus forsakes um, wealth. He gave up power. He was a servant to others. Um, Not all top-of-the-list priorities for us um, as we just grow up in, in this world. Um, but this is the end goal for Christians. This is the work of the Spirit to, to shape this kind of ethical transformation in our lives. Um, now, opposed to the fruit of the Spirit, we get the works of the flesh. Spirit is capitalized here because he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think we would be able to understand this passage better if we also capitalize flesh here. If we saw flesh and spirit as opposing forces. There are different ways to understand what is going on here between the struggle between spirit and flesh. Um, what's not going on is that flesh here does not represent your body. It's not that your body is at war or opposed to your soul, or to your mind. Um, this is inconsistent with the scriptures where God creates human bodies and says they're good. Where God wants to redeem those bodies and resurrect those bodies. Um, where the physical world is a good thing, part of God's good plan for life. There's a long tradition, though, in Christianity where we downplay the role of the body, where we um, kind of take on some ancient heresies and, and talk about the body being evil or prison and something that holds us back. Now, the body, like our minds and like our souls, are just fallen right now, and they're all kind of distorted by sin. But one day, the hope of the gospel is they'll be redeemed. Um, Sometimes people read this passage and they imagine, and this is what I heard a lot growing up, that inside of each one of us, there are two warring kind of persons or men um, or personalities or desires. You have the flesh, and the flesh wants you to do bad things. The flesh wants you to to indulge your darkest temptations. Then you have the spirit that lives inside of you, and he, of course, wants you to do right things and wants you to follow Christ and be more like him. Um, I think, though, that this anthropological interpretation, um, this idea that there are two, like, people inside of you, um, I don't think this is what Paul's intending. I'm also not really sure it makes a ton of sense if you sit down and really, like, try to work out the logic. Um, Of course, human beings have competing desires. And, of course, at times, we believe and act in contradictory ways. 
Um, there are things we would like to do that we know we shouldn't. There are things we do that we wish we hadn't have done. There are things we don't do that we wish we had done. Um, but the point in all of this, I think why they're contradictions, is because it's the same person doing them, right? There's a unity inside of us that struggles with this division. Um, for Paul, we know this. He's an apocalyptic theologian. He sees the world not as a battlefield inside of human beings, but as an actual battlefield. Um, he talks about things, and uh, he constantly personifies them. So when he talks about sin, more often than he just talks about sin as an action, he talks about sin in a way where we should capitalize it. Sin does things like a person would. Sin enslaves, sin kills, sin destroys. He talks about death this way as well. Flesh, he does the same way here. For Paul, flesh is a power, a cosmic power, um, that wants to work on human beings and human communities in a way opposed to the way that the Spirit wants to work and wants to shape human beings and communities. It would help us to take a step back, I think, and to understand Paul's bigger picture, how he understands world history. Um, The Jewish people at this time thought that history was linear. It was a timeline. Um, It had a definite end point goal that it was going towards. It wasn't a circle. It didn't repeat itself. It It was a line. It was linear. And they thought they were in, at that time, what they called the present evil age. It's a, a world characterized by sin and death, by sickness and pain. It's a world um, where the good world that God has created has gone off track, has spiraled out of control. But they believed one day history would be broken up, and one age would end, the present evil age, and a new age would come. And they called this the age to come. They called this the kingdom of God. If you remember, this is the main message that Jesus has in the Gospels. His, his announcement is the kingdom of God is arriving. And the kingdom of God is arriving in me and through me. And is available for those who follow me and put faith in me. And the Jewish people had signs from the Old Testament that would tell them as well, we're in the kingdom of God. And the signs were resurrection, death being undone. The signs were new creation. Isaiah talks about a new earth being created, a lion laying down with the lamb. And the signs were healing, sicknesses being overturned. The signs um, were that there'd be no more pain. The signs were that sins would be forgiven and sinners would be transformed. And they thought this would be a fairly decisive break. God would show up one day and the world and history would turn a corner. Now, the early Christians, following the lead of Paul, had to rework some of their expectations when Jesus arrives. Um, What the Jewish people had classically thought of as like two tectonic plates, where one clearly ends, the other clearly begins, in Christ, for Paul and other Christians, seems like it had shifted like this. And there was now an overlap, a time period between Jesus' first coming and second coming, when both ages were still in play. And for the early Christians, this explains why you can look around you right now and see signs of both ages. I look out and I still see funerals happening. I look out and I still see sickness and cancer and pain. I look out and I still see sin. But I also look out and I see the Holy Spirit. He's at work. I see people being transformed. I've seen a resurrection. 
And then that resurrection power at work in the world. Paul and others um, believe that when Jesus came, he starts the second track, if you will. So in Galatians 1, he lays this out. The very first couple verses in Galatians, he says, Thanks be to God, who through Christ has delivered us from the present evil age. And this is a technical theological term for the first century Jews. So if two ages are beginning, I like to imagine them as two tracks, two trains on separate tracks. On one track, you've still got the present evil age, and the works of the flesh are signs that you're living in that era still. And you have the fruit of the Spirit, and these are signs that you have been delivered, that you've been freed, that you've jumped off one train and been brought on to another train. Kingdom of God, the age to come, the life and work of the Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is why Paul gives such a harsh warning here after he talks about the different works of the flesh. He says, the people who do these things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is it they're doing? Let's review here. The works of the flesh that he lays out, they kind of go in triads. Um, The first uh, handful are talking about sex uh, and sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. The idea seems to be this this obsession with sex that can overtake and addict human beings. Um, It results in humans um, historically and and globally today um, using people as objects for gratification instead of human beings in which to have relationships with and to be faithful to. He then talks about um, some religious sin, idolatry, making things that aren't God, God, seeking fulfillment and satisfaction and protection from them. He talks about sorcery. Now, interestingly enough, the Greek word here for sorcery is actually the word where we get pharmaceutical. Um, And so um, I would love to read in here rebuke to big pharma, but I think it's probably a little too far here. Um, More likely is sorcery in the ancient world was often characterized by the taking of potions, right? Substances that they thought um, would help. Um, Interestingly enough, if if you track the data and you you look at uh, across the landscape here in America, sorcery is on the rise. It's easy to think of it as like a Middle middle Age thing uh, or an ancient thing. Um, But like Wiccan, um, New Age, nature, um, religions are, are growing actually in popularity just this week. We were talking about demon possession in, in one of my classes at HBU um, as we were in the Gospels, and a student offered up that his family was full of witches, um, that uh, has got a cousin and got an aunt and got like a third cousin who do these things, who practice in these type of things. And I think all of us are naturally maybe a little skeptical of such claims. Um, whether, right, they are actually are witches and wizards or whether they, they're just taking on these terms, right, um, it's clear and probably uncomfortably clear um, when you look at a landscape, this is a real thing still going on. People still seem to find power outside of the Spirit of God. And this is something that strikes us as odd, but would not have struck people living in the Gospels as odd. Right? They, they see this all the time. It wouldn't have struck the authors of the New Testament as odd. Um, there are more spirits for the authors of the New Testament than just the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit never contradicts Jesus. It's the Spirit of Christ. That's why um, the authors in the Testament will tell you if you're listening to the Spirit and it tells you to do something unchristlike, you might be listening to a Spirit, but it's not the right one. It's, it's not Christ's Spirit. It's not the, the Holy Spirit of God. These are signs for us. 
I think a good way, again, this train analogy of looking at it is you can look around you, both in your life and in your community. These are still community characteristics. And you can see, you can observe, you can evaluate and wonder what, what track that you're on. And he says the, the, the present evil age track, the works of the flesh track, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think this is judgmental. I don't think Paul's trying to be mean. I think this is more uh, just a fact that he's lovingly trying to, to tell somebody. Um, the kingdom of God is characterized by love, by peace, by justice, by righteousness, by strong communities, by obedience and submission to God. And if you are doing all of these things characterized by the flesh, you're never going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God doesn't look like that. It doesn't come from things like that. Those things work against the kingdom. They move you outside of the kingdom. Another reason I think he he speaks like this is because the present evil age for Christians has an end date. It has an expiration date. Now, we don't know that date, but we believe it to be when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, the overlap ends. The present evil age stops. Evil is wiped out. And in the age to come, the life of the Spirit continues on for eternity. And that's the warning here. Look, if you're looking around and you're seeing envy, you're seeing drunkenness, you're seeing idolatry, you're seeing sexual morality, then you need to be aware that the train you're on is heading towards a brick wall. This is not going to end well for the people living in this era, for the people most at home in this era, for the people who have made this era their home. I had a high schooler years ago uh, who I was very close with, and um, he was kind of derailing his life a bit. Um, And my tendency, my strategy with, with high schoolers is to try to be as unjudgmental as possible, Uh, we've all got to be aware they know what adults think about the things that they do, right? And just moralizing or lecturing is not always the best option. There should at least be different roles, right? They probably need a parent who's really onto them all the time. And they probably need a youth pastor or a pastor who they're going to be able to go talk to when the bottom drops out. Who They're going to feel like this is a friend. This is someone who who cares for my interests. And so we were at dinner one night, and I'm not bringing these things up. Um, but he kind of started talking about it and kind of asked, like, digging a little bit for my opinion. And I had to step back, and I was like, look, you really want to know what I think? You're binge drinking all the time. You're sleeping around with all kinds of girls, and you're just doing every type of drug that can get in front of you. I'm like, here's what I know as an adult, as a human being, is you're batting three for three on things that, that, that break kids. It's not a, I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to say that the car that you're on usually ends up in a ditch. It's just usually the natural outcome of this. Occasionally, it might not. It might work out for a couple people. But most people, about 100 like this, it just doesn't end well for them. I think this is what Paul's getting at here. But in contrast... For those who have been delivered from the present evil age, we're called to walk in the Spirit. Note um, that the fruit of the Spirit, fruit here is singular. It's not plural. I think there are profound reasons for this. I think there's a unity um, that comes with the Spirit. Um, I think works is plural on purpose because there's a, a disunity. There's kind of a chaotic semblance to the works of the flesh. 
Um, I think fruit is singular as well because all of these things come together. They all go with one another. You might be able to say you can't have one without the others. And I would suggest reflecting on this, that if you were looking at your life, and this I think is the invitation for us this morning, is to do some self-evaluation, look at our own lives, look at our community, and, and look at where the signs might be leading us. But if, if you were to look at it and say, I have this, I have one or I have two, but I have none of the others, I would say because they're a unity, I think what you think you might have might be counterfeit. It might look like it's there. It might look like it's real, but it might not be the real deal. I'll give you an example. You're looking down at this list. You're looking at your life, and you're like, you know what? I've got peace. I'm a peaceful person. Now, I don't have a whole lot of this other stuff. Um, I don't have patience. I'm not gentle. I'm not um, very good at discipline, at controlling myself. Um, Then I would wonder if you really have peace then. I would venture to say maybe it's the case if you're an impatient person, if the, the moment things go wrong, conflict, bitterness, trying to use force and power, doing things that you aren't necessarily in control of all the time, acting impulsively. I want to say maybe you don't have peace. Maybe your life is just going right right now. Does that make sense? Like maybe there's just no reason for you to be particularly upset right now. But it sure seems like if there is something that happens, all of these things go out the window really quickly. I mean, they all, I think, go together um, very well. Notice again that the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's not here giving us a to-do list. None of these are commands. Paul doesn't say, be a loving person, be a peaceful person, be a kind person. He's describing what the Spirit does in believers. It's the Spirit's job to make us loving, peaceful, kind, gentle, faithful, patient, self-control. These are not things that we can do or produce on our own. And I think there's some some freedom and, and liberation in that. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility. We have no role to play at all. I think we do. I think our responsibility, though, is simply to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. I often like to use this analogy to think uh, how this might work. And sailing is a good example of this, I think. And the Spirit is compared to wind in the Gospels. Jesus compares it to wind, so you can't control it. It blows where it wants to blow. In sailing, your job is not to create wind. Your job is to find the wind and let it move you. And over time, if you get good at it, what, what you'll find is there might be patterns. At a certain time of the day, with certain types of weather, you might go, the wind is usually right there. The wind usually blows this way. Usually, if I'm going in this direction, I'll need to adjust this way to keep the wind blowing me, to keep this sailboat going. This is how I think it works when we're told to walk in the Spirit. You can't control the Holy Spirit, but the Scriptures paint for us places where we should expect the Spirit to work. Universally, for everybody. This applies to to all Christians. Paul in 1 Corinthians will say that the church, the group of believers, their relationships together is the temple of God. It's where the Holy Spirit resides. And I think this is a pretty strong guarantee that if you want to 
be spoken to by the Holy Spirit. If you want the Holy Spirit to convict you, if you want the Holy Spirit to form you more into Christ's image, a good way to, to guarantee there'll be some encounter, some interaction, would be to go worship with other Christians. Go pray with other Christians. Go confess to other Christians. Go fellowship with other Christians. Go read scripture together. Go study together. Now, I think it's, it's perhaps possible for a church to be so out of sync that it's, it's more unusual when the Spirit shows up or speaks or is effective than, than not. But I think you really have to work at it at a church. It would take a concerted effort um, for after a year of worshiping together for us to be that evil and that bad and that distracted for the Spirit to never really move on any of us. No, you open up the Scriptures. You start singing. You start talking to one another. And you'll, you'll have some encounters with the Holy Spirit. You'll be, you'll be shaped. The Scriptures are another place where the Spirit speaks to us. There's a high guarantee that if you go to that part of the lake, the wind will be blowing. In prayer, the Spirit speaks to us. There's been lots of times in my life where I've gotten off track, and I, I start to exhibit more of the works of the flesh. And what gets me back on track is I have to eventually kind of wake up or be woken up. I have to go back to where I think the Spirit will meet me. So I tune back into worship. I spend more time in the Scriptures. There are these, these universal guarantees where the Spirit is and active and, and working. There are also individual ways that the Spirit works in each of our lives. For some of us, we, we meet the Spirit and are moved profoundly in nature. For others of us, we just fall asleep when we're outside. For me personally, when I read, the Spirit tends to show up and, and, and speak and move and cement my faith. For other people, right, they would rather never see a book in their entire life. Right? It's just individual. Everyone's looking at each other now. Okay, let's hold off on the blame. And this is the Christian responsibility, um, I think, uh, is to be receptive to the Spirit, to position ourselves in a way um, where the Spirit will guide us and influence us. I think this morning, um, the invitation for us, what I would challenge us to do, is to, to take a look at our lives, to take a look at our community as well to really think through some of these things. It's an amazing statement, he says, that against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. There simply exists no law in which to be concerned of when the Spirit is bearing fruit in your life. That's why it's been such a fundamental mistake for the Galatians to be so concerned with the law. They don't need the law. We don't need rules upon rules upon rules held over us, extra-biblical commands keep us in check. The Spirit can do that. If we would allow Him, if we'd open ourselves up to His work, to His guidance and conviction, to look at our lives and see perhaps what is more true of ourselves than, than anything else. I would say even better than, than self-evaluation for those of us who are brave would be to ask someone else for them to evaluate. We're, I, I'll speak for myself here. I'm very good at lying to myself. 
people around me often see the truth before I see the truth about things I'm doing, things I'm rationalizing, things I'm justifying. I'll give you an example. For years, I thought I was good looking. Just for a very long time. Then I got on a stage and people started taking pictures and I saw videos. And I was just like, wow, no one told me this. That was stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> but your, your family, your husband, your wife, your spouse, your, your church, brothers and sisters, have a pretty good read on things and are able to lovingly in a trust, in an ally, in a protective way, say, are you looking here? Have you seen this blind spot? This is something that I've, I've noticed. And that is our invitation. It's our opportunity to again step into the Spirit, to be more led by the Spirit. And the life of the Spirit is the beautiful life. It's the good life. We read this morning in Psalm 16 that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. David kind of runs out of adjectives to describe how good God is, how much joy there is near him. And we we walk in step with the Spirit because the Spirit is taking us straight to the Father. The Spirit is forming us in the image of Christ that we might enjoy the life of Christ the gift and the grace of the triune God. Will you pray with me? Father, we give thanks for our time together.